2: It's Friday, February 13th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis.
1: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
2: You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast.
1: This week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off their purchase if you go to Harry's.com and use coupon code Minds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code Inquiring Minds.
2: This episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming, or DVD and CD. But the best part is is that you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based Path to well-being. Go to the Greatcourses.com/slash inquiring minds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiring minds. This week, I interviewed David J. Morris, who worked as an embedded journalist in Iraq for three years during the war. Before then, he had served as a Marine, and his articles have appeared in The New Yorker, Slate, and other outlets. But he's just written a book called The Evil Hours, which documents his own struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder and pulls together the scientific and literary history of the disease. So one of the major changes that came along with the fifth revision of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5, is the addition of an entirely new class of disorders, those with a traumatic or stressful event as the triggering cause. And Morris argues that this change is a sign of our times, that almost 28 million Americans suffer from PTSD, and the term is now commonly used in the media and in conversation. And yet, before the Vietnam War, it was largely an unacknowledged condition. It still contains controversy, with many lay people not fully understanding its symptoms and treatment, and some people continuing to, ins- to insist that it's not a real disease – You even have people raising questions on social media and elsewhere about whether it's really PTSD if the triggering event didn't happen during combat or didn't involve a physical assault. So it's a difficult disease to get a handle on because there is still a stigma associated with it. But there's also a lot of misinformation about the effectiveness of medical treatment versus alternative therapies and so on. It's a touchy subject but I wanted to understand where we are in terms of the science without sacrificing the human experience of the illness. And this is where David comes in. His book is a repository of scientific facts tucked inside a compelling personal story. But instead of talking about science in the news this week. Since we do bring up some of the science about the treatment of PTSD, Kishore and I wanted to talk about and pull apart some of those studies at the end of the interview. So we thought we'd give our listeners a chance to listen to the interview and then come back to us and we'll talk a little more about some of the science of PTSD. David J. Morris, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
0: Great. Thank you for having me. Good to be here.
2: So you've written a book that both chronicles your struggle with PTSD and your research into the scientific and literary history of the illness. So, what do you think is the best or most accurate description of it for people who don't really know what PTSD is?
0: Ooh, tough question. I mean, the the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the psychiatric bible that sort of governs um, mental health disorders. Uh, sort of defines PTSD by three, largely by three criteria, um, and it's thought of as a um, mental health disorder arising uh, in the wake of an overwhelming experience of an or a near death experience, uh, like rape, war, or natural disaster, or, or auto accidents. And uh, the, the, the three symptom areas kind of break down like this. There's uh, hypervigilance or hyperarousal, um, which is a, a, a uh, physiological state uh, arising from uh, an inability to the, of the flight or flight um, response to disengage. So you'll, a lot of people that suffer from PTSD will be amped up all the time, uh, you know, the cliched sort of veteran, Travis Bickle kind of uh, veteran is sort of in, in a restaurant with his back to the wall watching the door. Um, So that's one that's one sort of symptom area. And the other symptom areas are an emotional numbing. Uh, And a lot of times you'll hear veterans saying, well, you know, since the war, you know, I I can do anger and I can do sadness. But those other emotions, happiness, joy, uh, silliness, uh, you know, the other the whole rainbow of emotions is not is not available to me anymore. Um, and the third major symptomatic area is that of intrusive symptoms uh, like nightmares and hallucinations and flashbacks uh, and these in some uh, according to some experts, this is the nightmare is one of the is really the, the signature symptom of post traumatic stress disorder
2: and so as you mentioned the the, D, the fifth revision of the DSM uh, it includes an entirely new class of disorders, those with a traumatic or stressful event as the triggering cause. And is that something I mean in your book you talk really about this is this is a disorder of our times and you know is that a sign that really this disorder is much more prevalent is it uh simply being diagnosed more often or is there something about our society that that kind of elicits PTSD in people
0: Um well I guess more more the former I look uh, I don't think PTSD uh, you know it, which is is a modern construct it was uh, PTSD was first recognized in 1980 um, so it, there are parts of it that are immortal and that have always been p- with humans, uh, and so I don't think I think we are far less, as, particularly as North Americans, we are far less traumatized than we were than our ancestors were. There's a lot less trauma in the world, by and large, uh, in the United States than there was in, say, the you know 1880s for, to, to pick a date at random. Um, but it is diagnosed far more often, and since uh, since the recognition of the dis- of the uh, since the recognition of PTSD in 1980, there has been almost a crowd control problem with it. Um, and it's very unusual as a diagnosis in the sense that it is a, it is thought by many to be a desirable diagnosis. Um, and, uh, you know, to that extent, you can see uh, on Amazon.com, you can go buy a, a, a patch, a commemorative patch that says PTSD, not all wounds are visible, which speaks to the point that, I mean, it's hard to imagine a similar patch being available for schizophrenia or for OCD, um, there is, I think, uh, you know, as a, as a way of signifying, uh, and symbolizing distress and suffering, um, because it's become so closely associated with the veterans experience and with war and, and with the, the elevated status of being a survivor, you know, capital S survivor, there, there has become this, um, desire on the part of some some people to have that diagnosis in some ways attached or associated with their particular brand of suffering. Um, and we can talk later about, you know, the, the ethics of that, because there are, um, you know, I think there there are, you know, I do make an argument in the book that if you, um, for instance, say, uh, people who watched the 9-11 attacks on television... And were very upset and distressed and lost sleep for a period of time. If those people should be diagnosed with PTSD, does that serve? Uh, how does that serve people that have been, um, you know, very seriously traumatized, uh, rape survivors, or is the idea that watching um, uh, traumatic and distressing events through the media uh, do? Does diagnosing those people with PTSD does that in some ways dilute the power of the original di- diagnostic concept of PTSD? Uh, I'm sort of of the opinion that that it does, uh, and I, and I'm um, not really I'm uh, you know at present uh, very skeptical of the idea that that for instance drone operators uh, who are currently being diagnosed with PTSD if that uh, is an appropriate designator of their uh, of their particular flavor of distress. Um, so there is it's interesting it's it's very it's become much more of a popular. Um, uh, it's, you know, PTSD is, is has expanded far beyond its original boundaries and become, uh, in some ways, a defining and perhaps the defining mental health disorder of our time.
2: Yeah, well, I absolutely want to talk about this. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the reasons I haven't covered PTSD on this show before is because it's a touchy subject. And I've, you know, I've struggled with how to approach it. And of course, I take a scientific view. But I do want to get at this question that you've just raised. Um, because, you know, if someone's diagnosed with cancer, even if they just have a little bit of cancer, and they excise the cancer, and the person is, you know, completely cured of cancer, you know, we still say that they have cancer. But it seems that there is some reluctance to say you can have a little bit of PTSD and still have PTSD. You know, do you know what I mean? Like, because, yeah, it, oh, yeah, you sure. know, just because, if I if I have a cancer that you know a, a little cancerous skin thing and someone excises it, I'm not comparing myself to someone who has stage four metastases and and has a much difficult more difficult survival you know prognosis. But I still considered myself as having had cancer. And so it it seems strange to me that with PTSD, it seems to be much more black and white. People, um, there's this backlash against someone saying, you know, I have PTSD from, you know, this thing that happened that maybe is not quite as uh, violent and assaulting as, you know, being in combat. Uh, So how do you, you know... I, I, I as you can see, I'm kind of speechless about it. So I, I want to hear more about what you think about this particular issue.
0: Well, I mean, everything you've just said, I think, speaks to the degree to which uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, has been what was originally a, uh, a moral argument. Uh, in, in PTSD, it's important to recognize, grew out of the protest movement, the counterculture of the 1970s. Um, specifically a group uh, from the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, uh, the most famous member of which was John Kerry. Uh, these people were all uh, opposed to the Vietnam War, wanted to end it, uh, and saw no meaningful distinction between their own suffering and the larger moral, moral questions uh, raised by the Vietnam War. They saw those as being one and the same. Since that time, and that group uh, fought for about 10 years to have uh, PTSD recognized and and entered into the DSM, since that time, um, virtually all of the moral um, and explicitly psychological overtones of PTSD have been strongly minimized. And this was something that Robert Lifton, who was one of the original architects of the diagnosis, uh, was very opposed to uh, and and uh, Arthur Eggendorf, who's a, another um, big big architect of the original diagnosis and high Shatton, these people were all uh, very political and very uh very morally uh, upset and distressed by the Vietnam War and thought that to convert what began as a moral spiritual and psychological argument into a strictly medical technical concern was a grave error. Um, and to a certain extent, I agree with them, and I think uh, the idea—you know—we we we treat PTSD. PTSD is managed in a way by by physicians, specifically by psychiatrists and clinical psychologists. Uh, it is treated in a way that is virtually identical to how uh, strep throat is treated, or measles are treated, uh, or an appendix is treated. Uh, and I think that's to our great detriment because it's not. Uh, there are no um, it's an open debate whether or not scientists will ever be able to discover uh, biomarkers, uh, which will, which you know, you could say, for instance, do an fMRI on a person and say this brain has PTSD and this brain does not. We are not at that stage uh, of science, and I don't think we are going to enter that stage anytime soon. Um, but the degree to which PTSD has been turned into a strictly uh, medical disorder you know i think we find ourselves in really shaky territory in that in that realm because um there are there is a very large moral component to it there's a very large um strictly psychological and emotional component to it um and i don't think uh you know there are uh, i think generally speaking there, i mean there is the specifically dsm outlined um symptoms uh and and the way that the, P, the way ptsd is diagnosed uh, and i'm generally comfortable with how those are arranged at this point um i think ptsd is one of the more robust uh diagnoses in the dsm um however i think it it the more you stick to ptsd as an identity and as a label as a as a uh persona a person defining label uh the more we get into trouble and i think the more people that you talk to that have lived and marines that i've interviewed and and uh Uh, you know, mountaineers that I interviewed for my book, they tend to bristle at the idea of being told that their service resulted in in a disorder. And they they prefer, and I prefer to generally speak of having struggled with PTS, post-traumatic stress, rather than describing myself as a PTSD survivor. Uh, I am not someone that is advocating a change. There are some people who want to change PTSD to PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury, um, which I'm not in that camp. Uh, But I generally consider it to be a a better idea to look at the post-traumatic state as a process, as a journey, as as a temporary state of being um, that one will struggle with, you know, perhaps the rest of one's life, as one can be said to struggle with alcoholism. But I think talking about it with the same metaphors and the same um uh, same lexicon that we reserve for cancer uh is in my view a mistake.
2: And so what do you mean by this notion that it's a moral problem or that that, that there's a, the moral component to uh the injury?
0: Uh well I don't mean that in the you know in the judeo-christian sense that it you know it it uh having PTSD uh, is, this, is you know, signifies that you have had some sort of moral collapse or anything of that sort. But, um, you know, this the, these sorts of moral questions uh, with respect to uh, warfare and sexual violence uh, factor, I mean, a good example of this is the American sniper Chris Kyle story. There is uh, a very serious question to be asked um, for snipers in particular, who are involved in the uh, open killing uh, of uh, other human beings, uh, which is something that is strongly um, de-in- de-incentivized and socialized out of uh, west out of Western man, out of modern man. One of the uh, we one of the things that are we are most strongly socialized against uh, in civilized society today is aggression towards your fellow human beings. And so, for a person who does who who Because of his enlistment and because of the terms of his service, uh, is asked and encouraged to violate this very serious moral prohibition against killing Um, that person who does the killing. And I've and I worked at the sniper school my last year in the Marine Corps. I've 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 been around snipers for a very long time uh, and spoke to some some psychologists uh, psychiatrists at Walter Reed who treat snipers in particular. And they are forced. They are faced with this very serious. Um, moral dilemma of which roughly goes along these lines: I have killed a number of my fellow man. Uh, this is a very distressing um, experience for me. I do not know how to bear all of the guilt and shame uh, and pain uh, of all of the all of the death that I have caused. Uh, and, and I think that is part of uh, part of the story, the underreported and really unreported story of the uh, the Chris Kyle story is that he did he made up things, he you know was a very uh, aggressive and and uh, gun loving you know Texan after his service. And you sort of have to wonder how much of this was due to his trying to uh, justify for himself that he was saving people. Uh, and, and to sort of manage the cognitive dissonance that any uh, modern Western human man would have about you know the the the, the moral weight of being responsible for the death of a hundred plus other human beings, um, and so this the moral concerns uh, of PTSD are uh, exist on a variety of levels. They exist, as I explained, on the individual level for people who are a part of. Uh, a war and who have to uh, you know in the aftermath of the war sort of um, examine their role uh, in the military in their role in a war in uh, the morality and the potential morality and the moral implications of being involved in a war which was unjust in the case of Iraq um, and additionally, there is um, the larger moral framework uh, of PTSD uh, which you know which by Robert by Robert J. Lifton and high Shatton, the, the people who originally advocated for it, Um, PTSD was a moral argument to say there are enduring long-term psychological uh, effects, uh, uh, negative impacts uh, that war and rape cause, and this needs to be addressed by society. And one way to address this is to have a institutionalized, psychiatrically uh, recognized disorder, which is What we currently call PTSD. So, I mean, PTSD is a is a moral argument. It's a it's in a sense a a political argument, Um, and it you know as in addition to being a diagnosis, which which speaks to the specific plight of an individual.
2: So, I want to get into the science of PTSD a little bit, but before we leave this topic, there was a sentence in your book that really struck me, and I wanted to get your comments on it. And that is, you write. Sometimes I think that half of combat PTSD in America would disappear overnight if we required citizens to take a more active role in both war making and welcoming warriors home. That's a, quite a statement. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, I mean one of the one of the major concerns, uh, and, and I've heard other Iraq, uh, I've heard Iraq veterans voice this, is that um, we would not, if there were more. Uh, members of Congress uh, and members of the, the Obama administration or the Bush administration that were that had to send loved ones into the war zone, it would not. Um, there would we would not go. To, we would not have invaded Iraq if everyone in Congress had to volunteer a loved one to go. Um, and so the idea, I mean, national service, uh, the way the uh, American society is currently organized, it's it's very uh, undemocrat, undemocratic, and even anti-democratic in the sense that the all volunteer force does not require uh, the engagement of the entire populace. And so my argument there is if if before we went to war, everyone was required to say, I will either serve in the military uh, or I will um, offer myself as in a form of national service either uh, as the Germans do or did until relatively recently, in a VA type capacity, or a Peace Corps or a type capacity, where national service is a part of the war-making process. So my argument there is is you know two things. Number one, uh, we would if we had some form of national service that we would go to war. Uh, the current war on terror would have been over a long time ago, and we certainly would not have invaded Iraq. Uh, and then secondarily, when there was national service after World War II, for instance. Uh, the opportunities where, in, in in the wake of World War II, about ten percent of the United States was in uniform. So everybody knew several people that had served, um, and almost every almost every family had a family member that was in uniform. Um, and so the, the opportunities for military people to be understood. You know the opportunities to be um, heard and listened to and and, uh, and understood on a deeper level existed in a way that they simply don't anymore. So there would we would be at war less, and there would be far greater opportunities to be understood if we had some some form of national service. So it exists. That argument I made for a number of reasons. Um, you know the, those two that I just mentioned.
2: Let's take a short break, and we'll be back with more of David J. Morris. It's already February. What are you waiting for? You should invest in yourself this year and start learning something new at lynda.com with a free 10-day trial. lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design and business, and software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find a better work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, or improve upon your current job skills in 2015, lynda.com has something for everyone. So sign up for your free 10-day trial by visiting lynda.com minds, and you'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com, as well as access to view tutorials on tablets and iPhone and Android mobile devices. You can access all of the new courses that are added every week. There are courses like Getting Things Done, Breaking Out of a Rut, Foundations of Photography. Invest in yourself and sign up for a free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash minds. Learn something new in 2015.
1: This week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind. So make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's high-quality German-engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship them for free straight to your door. And trust me, as a member of the Bearded Brigade, investing in a high-quality razor is one of the best investments you can make. Their starter set is just $15. That includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's Shave Cream or Foaming Shave Gel. But as an added bonus, Harry's will give first time customers $5 off their purchase if you use our coupon code, Inquiring Minds. That's H A R R Y S dot com, coupon code, Inquiring Minds.
2: At Inquiring Minds, we value lifelong learning, and that's why we're big fans of the Great Courses. The Great Courses is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, and they offer engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their field. Now, meditation has gotten a lot of press in the last few years, and I personally have always been a little bit skeptical of just how effective it can be. But I recently watched The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being by Doctor of Psychology Ronald D. Siegel of Harvard Medical School and the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And in The Science of Mindfulness, Dr. Siegel shows how ancient wisdom and traditions combined with the discoveries of modern science can help us deal with everyday difficulties and live fuller, richer lives. So if you're curious about meditation or need a new science-based way to de-stress and unclutter your mind, try this course. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. Order The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being, and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% savings is only available for a limited time, so don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. So I want to help our listeners understand what the experience of PTSD is like. And, you know, I often think of PTSD as episodic memories, your memories for, you know, particularly the traumatic event gone awry. They've become overactive. And you do a wonderful job in the book talking about the work of Jim McGaugh at UC Irvine. So I wanted to start there. Have you just let us know a little bit about some of the science uh, related to what happens when a memory goes on overdrive?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Talking to Jim McGaugh, who's a long-standing neuroscientist uh, who's done work on emotion and memory for several decades, uh, beginning in the 1960s, uh, the, one of the first ideas uh, with his work that he discovered was that all, not all memories are created equal. And there is this idea that we sort of think of uh, the human brain as like a hard disk, that it just records everything and there's one needle in one groove and recording things at an equal uh, equal level of depth and intensity and level of information. Uh, and what he discovered uh, over time is something rather different, uh, specifically that uh, heightened emotional states uh, and one's emotional state tends to have a heavy influence on the memories that grow out of those experiences. Um, so, for instance, he tells this very interesting vignette from the early medieval period um, in European history before... Um, writing and before literacy was widely uh, distributed across the European continent. Uh, and, and he describes instances where a real estate transaction would be taking place. Uh, and in order to uh, better record what was uh, the transaction that was being uh, conducted, where some, someone was getting a piece of land and giving it to someone else for, for, a, a, piece of, for a certain amount, of, for a certain sum, they would have a seven-year-old from the local village observe the transaction— carefully being told to ter- carefully take note of everything that was happening and then they would throw that child into a local river and the idea behind that was <laughs> which sounds uh, ho- or horrific and traumatic but the idea behind that yeah, was pretty cruel yeah and, and the idea behind that was that and and Um, you know, medieval Europeans understood this on a a sort of base level, was that if you attach a significant event, an emotionally significant event, um, the human being will tend to record things that happened before, just before the traumatic event, with a greater level of perceptivity and a greater level of information uh, retaining. So, uh, and he sort of builds this into his work in other ways, in the sense that... um, he, he understood, and he, most of his work is more of the pure science variety, and he worked primarily with mammals other than human beings, primarily rats uh, and other researchers such as Roger Pittman at Harvard have gone in and said, well okay, if, if that's true if an emotion if an emotion heightened sense of emotion and uh, a heightened sense of adrenaline and stress hormones in the person's uh, body happen and those those accentuate the memory making process and and uh, aid in the process of creating traumatic memories. What if we were to, say, dampen that adrenal response with a pharmaceutical? Uh, and so uh, over time, they found that there's was, there was this very powerful drug that's actually very rather old called propranolol, which is a beta blocker. Uh, it's a heart drug, uh, and that musicians often take it, um, or TV people and broadcast television often take it because it reduces your nerves, your nervousness, and it gives you a steadier hand. Um, so they found that if you could give someone propranolol, say within about 72 hours after a traumatic event, you could reduce the likelihood of subsequent PTSD by about 50. percent um, So, and some people have called the propranolol the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind drug, and which I think is is not an inaccurate description because it uh, it's a very it's not a really advanced drug it, it costs very little. Um, But it has, if it's administered in a particular way, it has the potential to uh, reduce the power of traumatic memory. Uh, And subsequent to that, Roger Pittman, a researcher at Harvard Medical School, uh, published an article in Biological Psychiatry uh, in 2013, which outlined uh, the administration of propranolol, this beta blocker drug. Um, with combined with an exposure therapy where, um, people, traumatized people were briefly retelling the story of their trauma, uh, and then taking propranolol in order to reduce, um, the, uh, the adrenaline system within their bodies. So, and, and he found that that so far they, it was just a pilot study he had done, but they found that this was reducing, um, people's PTSD symptoms.
2: It's it is really remarkable, and we should say that the FDA has not approved uh, propenolol for use uh, to to uh, cover anxiety disorder. It's still just a heart drug, but you're right that it's it's widely used off label for these uh, other reasons. Um, and it it yeah, it seems to have this potential. It's been talked about as as a potential cure for PTSD. So, I'm excited to see that there's some pilot work showing that you know in collaboration with exposure therapy, which is something else I wanted to talk about because in general, I think of as the most commonly prescribed therapy for p t s d is this exposure therapy, and you've experienced it. so can you tell us a little bit about um you know the science behind the therapy and then your own experience of it
0: certainly um Prolonged exposure is the, the VA's number one individual psychotherapy. And it's important to keep in mind that the VA is the second largest part of the U.S. government and they really are the leader in terms of global PTSD research and therapy. So they, a lot of people look to them for, for what therapies to use. And, uh, interestingly, so prolonged exposure is is loosely based on the on the work of Ivan Pavlov and was updated, uh, the famous Russian physiologist who who trained dogs, uh, and and it was f- subsequently updated by Edna Foa, uh, a University of Pennsylvania uh, researcher. And the idea behind prolonged exposure therapy is that if you retell the story of your worst trauma over and over again. In some instances, scores of times or dozens of times, eventually that traumatic story, that traumatic memory is going to become just like your other normal memories and it will lose all of its heavy emotional charge. uh, And that particular aspect uh, of your PTSD will be resolved. Um, There's a lot of good research behind it. It's probably the most, um, there's probably been more um, clinical trials uh, on prolonged exposure than any other PTSD therapy. Um, and it's been shown to work, and about 60% of the time it reduces people's symptoms. Um, However, there is a significant body of research that also shows that it has a significant side side effect profile, Uh, and some of the research, peer-reviewed research on this subject shows that about 28% of the time it actually makes um, people's symptoms worse. Uh, And that was roughly what happened to me. I, I underwent prolonged exposure therapy at the VA in San Diego in 2012, uh, and had a very adverse reaction to it. Um, I was asked to recount the story of an IED ambush I survived in Baghdad in 2007, uh, and so I told this story dozens and dozens of times. And rather than a reduction in in my anxiety and hypervigilance uh, and, and insomnia, I found that it actually made things worse. Uh, and, and for me, it felt like uh, a lot of the the sort of venom in my veins, the toxin in my blood that that um, I felt when I was in Iraq, when I was living there, when I was working in Iraq as a, as a reporter, all of those feelings, uh, all of those somatic uh, discontents had sort of surfaced again, and, and I felt like my body was in fact back in Iraq. Uh, and, I, and I think this—I was really disturbed by this. I didn't know anything about prolonged exposure therapy before I underwent it, and then after I had this adverse reaction, I did some research and discovered uh, that there are some— uh, some contraindications for, for prolonged exposure therapy, um, and interestingly, I think uh, to step back for a minute, I think one of the one of the the problems I have with the therapy is that it it speaks of sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of what combat trauma is. Uh, most PTSD therapies tend to. And most—and the diagnostic tools used to treat—to identify PTSD are all predicated on the idea that it is one or two singular traumatic events that cause someone to have PTSD and have insomnia and hypervigilance and and intrusive symptoms. When, in fact, if you you talk to Iraq veterans or Afghanistan veterans, you know, many of whom have done five, six, seven deployments, you know, and say, you know, one Marine that I spent some time with who spent 42 months in country— and then you step back and think about it, and, you know, certainly this Marine would have had some close calls with IEDs and some near-death experiences, but, you know, equal and perhaps of greater um, power, uh, destructive power, uh, damaging power for, for this kind of person is that they have lived in the shadow of death, you know, ne- you know, near IEDs, you know, being mortared for months and months and months. And so that cumul- the trauma in a war zone does have a cumulative effect. Uh, and that fear of of living on the that living on the knife edge of fear for months as as most veterans do that can be really problematic and the VA tends to not think of it that way they tend to want it you know as you know as fits the scientific method, method generally they tend to want to isolate one particular element and treat that one discrete singular unique Element and 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 try to reduce its its power, and so I think they they struggle. Um, the science behind PTSD, the the research into the psychotherapies behind PTSD, is sort of stalled on that issue because they, if you say, okay, well, you lived in a war zone for forty two months, let's try to treat that. That's a far more vexing and far more difficult to measure situation than saying, well, it was just that IED ambush that you had in Baghdad, so let's talk about that, which is mostly what they do now.
2: And that's really the problem with, you know, trying to find a therapy like propranolol that can sort of, you know, erase that one memory that that seems to be triggering everything, right?
0: Um, yeah, and that's and that's interesting because, uh, you know, the research so far shows that propranolol only reduces PTSD by about half. So you have to ask yourself, well, what about that other half? What's going on there? Um, And that's where the science is still, you know, we're still, uh, you know, the research on that is still emerging. Um, And some people think, and this sort of gets to some of the basic epistemological problems with PTSD um, and the, you know, nosological problems with PTSD. Uh, There, you know, researchers that have spent 20, 30 years looking at it will tell you that it's a very messy, baggy, heterogeneous diagnostic category. Um, Specifically, uh, in terms of comorbidity or other disorders that are associated with PTSD, one almost never sees pure PTSD diagnosed. There is almost always comorbid depression, comorbid uh, substance abuse, comorbid uh, generalized anxiety disorder. And so you see, you know, it, it very it, it, it's very close cousins to a number of different disorders, and there are even some researchers like Ben Shepard and Derek Summerfield at King King's College in London that basically think that PTSD is a social fiction created by Americans um, that doesn't really relate to the global community in any meaningful way.
2: Wow. What do you think about that? What's Uh, your response to them? Well, you know, it's hard to say. And
0: it asks, you know, the idea of cross-cultural psychiatry opens up a lot of questions um, that are very difficult to answer. Um, But I think, uh, generally speaking, um, if you look at PTSD, again, from a moral perspective, I think it conveys a lot of advantages and a lot um, of—it opens up a whole new vein of narrative and a whole new vein of sympathy for, uh, you know, say, it is a—it is certainly—PTSD is most definitely a product of the Vietnam War, uh, and it needs to keep evolving— Um, But if you look in terms of how it has created a conversation uh, on a community of survivors, and it allows us to, even despite its very heavy American cultural influence, it still allows us to uh, understand the plight of a, you know, a woman in India who has been raped and and is suffering, who cannot sleep afterwards and and feels threatened uh, throughout the day, which is a very, very real phenomenon. So I think... Uh, I tend to to look rather skeptically on on the idea that that PTSD is strictly an American disease, which a number of of, of British subjects have have argued. A, a friend of mine uh, wanted to proposed uh, reviewing a book about PTSD to a London literary journal, and was told by the editor that uh, PTSD is an American disease. So there is, uh, you know, I tend to th- those those sorts of criticisms. I think are fascinating and, and help open up. Um, help us examine um, sort of the theoretical underpinnings of PTSD, which, surprisingly, the more I looked into it, are not PTSD is not this stable, universal, unitary um, diagnosis. It's got uh, you know it it grew out of the 1970s. It grew out of a time. Uh, it grew out of a very particular moral argument that war is evil, uh, and that the American war in Vietnam was especially evil and needed to be stopped. Um, so I, I think it does, uh, PTSD does have some translation issues that, that, that only become apparent when you really start interrogating the peer reviewed science uh, and asking yourself, you know, does, uh, you know, is it appropriate to say, as one Duke University researcher said, is it, is it appropriate and accurate to say that in the wake of this, the Sri Lankan tsunami, that roughly 60% of the population will be suffering from PTSD? You know, I'm not I'm not convinced that that question sort of seems rather problematic to me.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, people will argue that there are certain populations of people and generations even that are more or less resilient. Um, You know, what what is the rate of PTSD in Holocaust survivors? Do we do we know the answer to that? Um, And, and, you know, we, we know that there there seems to be a trend that children get PTSD less frequently than adults, that they have more resilience. Do you have any thoughts about resilience and, you know, what we can do to limit the potential for PTSD in people?
0: Um, well, it's difficult. Um, uh, I mean, I'll answer the question this way. There, um, the uh, In the book, I take a look at uh, John McCain and the Hanoi Hilton cohort, the group of uh, American servicemen who were incarcerated in, in the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, in John McCain's case, he was incarcerated for five and a half years. Uh, and those group of, of veterans have a strikingly low lifetime PTSD diagnosis rate, around 3 to 4%, which is a, just a fraction of the average uh, Iraq or Afghanistan veteran, um, which that, that cohort has about a 12 to 15 to 20% PTSD diagnosis rate. And so the question is, what, what happened? Who, who were uh, the Hanoi Hilton cohort uh, and, and what happened to them uh, both before, during, and after uh, their trauma? Uh, And what you find is, uh, in terms of resilience, uh, in terms of who's likely to get the the disorder, uh, with John McCain's group, they were all older. They were not your typical 17-year-old Vietnam draftee. They were all higher ranking. The average age among the prisoners was about 34. Uh, They had all—virtually all of them had been to college. Um, They all came from relatively stable, relatively affluent families— uh, and they had all gone through extensive, in some cases, years-long training and preparation, uh, you know, flight school, officer candidate school, uh, and many of them had gone to a mock prisoner of war camp. So by the time they arrived at the Hanoi Hilton, you know, place, they had all of these—life had conveyed upon them all of these um, advantages that, that protected them against the, uh, the subsequent onslaught, the subsequent diagnosis of PTSD— um, and in, in addition, after they returned for to the – when they returned to the United States, they were greeted almost like returning astronauts and given um, you know, the, the most lavish welcome home uh, and uh, re-embraced by the country that you could imagine. They were, they were feted at the White House uh, with a party thrown by President Nixon. Frank Sinatra was there. Sammy Davis Jr. was there. They were given lifetime tickets to Major League Baseball. And all of their experiences, and I think this is far more important, all of their experiences were heard, listened to, and turned into—internalized and converted into a kind of wisdom literature that people go back on, almost like the Holocaust in some cases. Um, People uh, retell the story of John McCain's survival as almost a triumph of the human spirit uh, and these sorts of things. And so there are—in terms of resilience, there are a number of factors in terms of preparation for veterans— um, and uh, a sense of uh, one of the strongest uh, factors they found in interviewing prisoners of war after the experience um, was that many of them reported that a sense of optimism or a sense of spiritual well being, or that there is a plan and that I'm going to be okay and that I have a good team that cares for me. All of those factors, and particularly the idea of. Uh, optimism, a personal optimism, tended to protect one against subsequent um, PTSD down the road.
2: Interesting. So It get get, also gets back to your comment about welcoming warriors home. So I just want to remind our listeners that David J. Morris's book, The Evil Hours, A Biography of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, is now on bookshelves and I'm sure on various outlets online um, available. So thank you, Dave, for being on Inquiring Minds.
0: Thank you for having me. That was great.
1: That was a thought-provoking interview, Andre, And I was struck by how we really don't have a clear definition of what PTSD is.
2: Yeah, I mean, there is obviously what the diagnosticians use, you know, the manual provides. And that's relatively clear, but it's also clear to me from talking to Dave that the experience can be so different from one person to another. And while that's true of a lot of disorders, like for example, you know, schizophrenia has a lot of subtypes and people can, you know, symptoms can look very, very different from someone who say has, you know, catatonic symptoms primarily versus or negative symptoms of schizophrenia versus someone who has very positive hallucinations, etc. Um, so, you know, the, the, the sort of phenotype of the disease can look very different from one person to another. But it still seems that in, in terms of PTSD, you know, we don't, I don't Know that we have necessarily a, enough of a core thing that joins all of these different sort of potential subtypes together. Um, and also, there, you know, it, 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 yeah, it just seems as though the experience is difficult to describe uh, from the perspective of the sufferer.
1: And there seems to be a lot of lines being drawn between uh, PTSD patients that have incurred this due to uh, violent actions, especially in war. Uh, versus others that are coming from more civilian based situations. That seems to be a politicization of this issue. Uh, And David sort of uh, addressed that to a certain extent. But not in a way that I found um, satisfying. Do you think we're going to see a more rigorous definition of PTSD from the science side?
2: I do think it's going to probably evolve. And, you know, I, I think, in part, what people are kind of responding to is this notion that, you know, th- there is this triggering event and there's this idea of whether or not the, um, you know, the 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 triggering event itself should be part of the diagnosis, right? Is it something that it was a physical assault or was it some kind of um, mental abuse or some other thing that, that kind of caused the initial uh, stress in the initial event? You know, I don't know how individuals who suffer from PTSD differ on the basis of the effects of those events. I don't know enough about the disease to say, or I don't. I don't know that science knows enough about the disease to really make that distinction. Um, and you know, as as a scientist, if there's a way that that distinction can be helpful in terms of the treatment, then I think it's of gr- of great value. If, on the other hand, it's only a way to stigmatize people. Because you know they didn't have the right trigger, you know that's something that I think would be harmful to those people.
1: So let's start delving into the science that David mentions. He talks a fair amount about propanolol. I'm just <laughs> I'm never going to get that word right. And uh, let's talk about this drug. It's actually used as a beta blocker. It's a heart medication. It's an off label prescription for PTSD patients, and it's widely considered controversial right now because we don't have very much data on it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, David was pretty positive about it, um which was kind of surprising to me, I have to say, because I didn't I thought the jury was still out on the basis of whether or not it's actually effective in treating PTSD. I mean, there's certainly evidence that it has some efficacy in treating um, you know, sort of the 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 one um the one memory perhaps that that is a is a triggering event. But, you know, the the fact that it's off-label use, you know, there really hasn't, as far as I know, been a lot of double-blind, placebo-controlled work to evaluate its effectiveness. And because this is really, these symptoms are so subjective, it's even more important to have all of those controls in place. And
1: before people overreact to the off-label prescription, uh, latest data indicates that doctors prescribe... 11 to 20 percent of medications for off-label uses. so it's not oh, it's that very it's, common. it's yeah, very common It's incredibly common practice uh, but I want to uh, dig a little deeper into this whole pliability of memory, which is what this drug is is supposedly doing it's that it's blocking neurotransmitters at a point when there's recall of this um, of this incident this trigger event
2: yeah, so so one of the most interesting kind of findings in the neuroscience of memory in the last few decades is this idea that when you actually recall... A memory, and this is particularly true of an emotionally laden memory, or of a memory that involves a lot of other details, like of an episode in your life, for example, that you make the memory trace itself vulnerable again. So that means that that memory trace is changed every time you remember, and has the potential to be extinguished if, for example, you damage the part of the brain that is involved in that remembering, uh, or, you know, a part of the brain that feeds into it, and so forth. Um, And that damage, of course, can happen with a drug that blocks it or, you know, some other kind of of way of damaging it. Um, And so that's it's it's called memory reconsolidation. So we consolidate memories and that means that they become, you know, sort of independent of a certain part of the brain. They're sort of consolidated. Uh, But, you know, when we remember, we sort of make them vulnerable again to be reconsolidated or not. Um, and so that's the exciting thing about the work that's coming out of a lot of the rodent work, uh, which is where this work originated. The fact that you can change a fear, you can extinguish a fear memory by making it active again, putting the animal in the same context in which they initially felt fear and then giving them a drug that, you know, blocks the activity of these brain regions. And there has been a, a few studies that have come out very recently um, in you know in nature, and I believe science as well, showing that this is effective in humans as well that you can block a specific memory that's um often emotionally laden fear fear based but the question is, does this then transfer to p t s d which you know seems to be more than just one memory
1: so there was a great article in Nature this week that talks about this particular issue, and one of the things I found most compelling about um uh, about it is it, it sort of relays the story of a, a psychiatry study that's underway in New York right now, where they're trying to enroll 60 participants in a study to look at the efficacy of this drug and they haven't, so far they've only been able to enroll one person so far. and One person per month. One person per month, yes. Yeah. And, uh, which is... Very not, slow. Very slow, let's <laughs> very just say. slow. Um, but what I found fascinating is they also talked to a bioethicist who raised concerns about the military being able to prescribe this medication, which may suppress memories um, in the context of soldiers and and what that potentially means. And they're very frank uh, about it. Like, could this actually lead to uh, us using, uh, abusing this drug in some way uh, to suppress memories of very terrible incidents and reinserting some of these people back into situations they may not be ready for.
2: And this is really why I wanted to start to tackle this subject on Inquiring Minds, because it really is at the interface of science and society. And we need to think about what are the implications of some of these treatments if they are, in fact, effective. You know, as you bring up, do we really want to inoculate soldiers from having, you know, memories related to really kind of traumatic and and terrible situations. And, you know, I don't want to see a soldier suffer coming back from war. But I also want to have a soldier who has a conscience going into war.
1: Yeah. And we're at this pace where society is outstripped science. We have a huge population that is returning home that is uh, laden with this disease. And we have a a health system that is burdened with an only approved... Um, treatment is the exposure therapy that David really talks about Mm -hmm. which at least my take on the interview is that it's never going to be a catch all for everyone
2: it's not, although you know the efficacy of it is one of the reasons why there are so few people signing up for the placebo-controlled study uh, for pranolol because you know because it is effective for those for those people for whom it's effective, it's effective. The problem is is that, as he talked about, he, it has this this side effect profile for a a fairly large proportion of individuals where it's it's even worse than you know previous without before therapy.
1: And you looked at a review study this week that looked at various pharmacological interventions, related to PTSD and their efficacy. And what, what did you find?
2: Yeah, so I found that there's there's still, first of all, there the jury's still out. There doesn't seem to be a consistently effective pharmacological treatment for PTSD. But on the other hand, there is a whole host of pharmacological substances that are effective at extinguishing specific memories. Uh, in, in rodents in particular, but even in humans now, we're seeing that you know, there is this, um, this ability for these drugs to extinguish memories memories. So I think that, you know, that's really where we are in the science is that we're able to extinguish a memory. And again, it's we're not talking about eternal, you know, sunshine of the spotless mind where, you know, we're Thank able to really that, get that specifically specific about a memory that has so many kind of tentacles, right? You know, um, we're talking about a pretty, you know, specific conditioned fear of, you know, like a spider or something like that.
1: I think it brings up a a quandary. Like the science is definitely we're na we nascent. David said that himself, but at the at the same time, we're years away from getting to any sort of conclusion uh about any of the efficacy of these drugs. And we're uh the experiment is going to be conducted on a lot of these veterans coming home.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think the real problem is is that, you know, these early studies, these pilot studies that showed effects that David talked about, um, really are just pilot studies. They're not placebo-controlled. They're not double-blind. I mean, there's one study that I read that showed, you know, a, a positive effect of propranolol, uh, but the comparison group was people who declined to take pro- propranolol. So, you have the problem, first off, of the person, you know, the, the, the treatment group knowing that they are on the drug as opposed to be on, being on placebo. So, there could be expectation effects there. And secondly, you have people who specifically chose not to be on that drug. And we don't know why they chose that. Um, and it turns out, of course, that their symptoms were more severe at the end of the trial than the people who were on the drug. And so, but, you know, it's just really hard to interpret those data. And it's just, you know, it's a study that really, you know, might show an initial interest, but it's certainly not going to be FDA approved or change the way that medicine is practiced. So
1: I have to say, David sounded hopeful, or at least represented um, the possibility of the of, of this new drug being a, a hope for a lot of uh, uh ptsd patients out there i felt the opposite after reviewing the literature and that and we is, have no solutions for a lot of people
2: and i think the problem is that this is not a new drug it's not <laughs> this is this is not something that's just been discovered in the lab and you know so that always to me that always t- worries me is that you know if if there's been a drug that's been out there for a long time and people have already thought about its effects on this kind of thing, and it's still not showing to be effective, it's still not a blockbuster, um, you know, you, you got to start wondering whether it's ever going to be that effective.
1: Well, I applaud what David's doing, which is taking the science and marrying it with a personal narrative to, to bring this to the forefront. Because I think at this point, that's all we can really do. The science is going to continue at the pace it's at. I think there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm and political motivation to keep accelerating that forward. But I hope it goes slow.
2: And, you know, his book is really good. He really does discuss the science in a very... Um, sort of detailed and objective as objective as you, as he could be um, way and so I, I, I think the book is is really worth reading and really worth getting if you're interested in this particular topic um, but I also think that we still are a long way from being able to just delete this memory these memories and cure the disease. So that's it for another episode I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to minds at climatedesk.org.
1: And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first time customers $5 off their purchase if you go to harry's.com and use coupon code Inquiring Minds. That's H A R R Y S.com, coupon code Inquiring Minds.
2: And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds.
1: Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan.
2: And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis.
1: And I'm Kishore Hari. See you next week.
0: NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or Lending Partner Banks and serviced by NetCredit.
2: Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash NetCredit. Credit to the people.